0: Today we continue our sermon series entitled High Five, Five Sermons from the Last Five Years. Coming in at number four is a message that was originally preached less than a year ago, August the 18th, 2019. It's simply entitled Overcoming Temptation. It is rooted in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. It is to that passage I invite you to give your attention this morning And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 1, allow me to begin reading at verse 13. I'll conclude at verse 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we ask for your Holy Spirit to once again illuminate your sacred scripture. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) Following his admonition to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, Pastor James then turns his attention towards temptations. And friends, is there a connection between trials and temptations? For certainly they are different in source and desired outcome. For the source of a trial is God. The source of a temptation is the devil. The desired outcome of a trial is to build up faith. The desired outcome of a temptation is to tear down faith. Yet it was Warren Wearsby, who provides us some help in the correlation between a trial and a temptation, when he writes that the trials on the outside can become temptations on the inside. For when we experience difficult circumstances, we just might be tempted to question God, to resist his love, to disobey his will. And when we resist God, it is the devil who uses that opportunity to help us escape the difficult circumstance in an unholy manner. Wearsby went on to write that a temptation is striving to do a good thing in a bad way. Allow me to give you just a couple of examples. It is a good thing to desire to pass the science test, yet, cheating is a bad way to achieve it. It is a good thing to enjoy food, yet stealing that food is a bad way to obtain it. Sexual intimacy is a good gift from God, yet taking it outside of the biblical boundaries between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is always detrimental. I don't need a show of hands, To know the truth of this statement, that all of us from time to time fall prey to temptation. We all have the same testimony there are moments when we overcome temptation, and then there are other moments when we are overpowered by temptation. I dare say that every single one listening to my voice at some point has asked himself or herself, is there a way for me to successfully, consistently overcome temptation? And fortunately, the Bible is not silent on this topic. Pastor James, the little brother of Jesus, gives the congregation at least three valuable lessons when it comes to overcoming temptation. First, If you and I are gonna overcome temptation, we must look ahead. Revisit with me verses 13 to 16 of our passage. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. One of the first fundamental truth statements of God that you and I learned is that God is Holy. There is nothing wicked in God, nothing evil in God. There is nothing sinister or sinful in God. God cannot sin, nor can he tempt anybody to sin. When you fall prey to temptation, you have no one to blame but yourself. He said that sin occurs by our own evil desires. We can't say, God made me do it. We can't even quote our first mother, Eve, in the garden who says the devil made me do it. We can't blame it on somebody else. We can't say that it's my friend's fault. We cannot say it's my upbringing's fault. We cannot say it's simply my past and we cannot blame the system. The one who's responsible for your spiritual growth is the one seated between the individual on your left and on your right, it's you. You are the one most responsible for your spiritual growth. So when you fall prey to temptation, you have no one to blame but yourself. Can't blame God, cannot blame the devil, cannot blame other people. You simply have to own it. James says, by our own evil desires, we are dragged away and enticed. Now, not all desires are evil desires. In fact, God gives us desires, appetites for our own good. There is nothing wrong with the desire for food to eat and water to drink. After all, it is the body's mechanism of telling you how it ought to be nourished. For your body cannot live without food to eat and water to drink. It is a good desire to long to eat and to drink. It is not a bad appetite to sleep. In fact, our bodies need rest. We are not designed, we are not built to go 24-7, nonstop, day after day, week after week. Eventually, we'll give out and burn out. It was John Piper who said that every time I lay my head on my pillow, it reminds me that I am not God, because God neither slumbers nor sleeps, but I oftentimes will slumber and need to sleep. So your appetite for rest is not a bad thing. Also, your appetite for sexual intimacy is not a bad thing, for God gave you that gift for procreation and for pleasure, but all desires can be abused. All appetites can be excessive. For example, if you are abusive to the appetite of food, it can result in one of two extremes, either anorexia on the one hand or gluttony on the other hand. When you think about sleep, it is possible to abuse in excess sleep and rest, and the end result is slothful laziness. And it is possible that your sexual desire, your sexual drive and appetite may attempt to take you outside of the confines and the boundaries of biblical marriage, but every single time that the sex desire is taken outside of God's design, your destruction results. Uh, There have been some throughout the ages who have said, well, in order for me to be hyper-spiritual— then I just need to deny myself of my appetites. I just need to deny myself of desire, deny myself of food, or deny myself of drink, deny myself of sleep, or deny myself of sex. And I have come this morning to tell you that the answer is not denial, but the answer is control. You and I have to be controlled, not self-controlled, but spirit-controlled. All of our appetites, all of our desires must be subject and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. For if you have an appetite, if you have a desire that is outside of the control of the Spirit of God, then it becomes what James describes, an evil desire. And it's that evil desire That wells up inside of you, that drags you away and entices you to sin. That word entice is a graphic word picture. It's the image of a baited hook. I don't know the IQ of the average fish, but I do know this much. Most fish are smart enough to know that they ought not nibble on an empty hook. That hook has to be baited. It's the bait that attracts the fish. It's it's the bait that hides the reality of the hook and the consequences of the hook. In the same way James is saying temptation is a baited hook. It hides the sin in your life and it hides the consequences of that sin in your life. The success of a fisherman, the success of a hunter is to be able to trick the prey into a false reality. The fisherman just wants the fish to believe that that lure is real. And the hunter wants the buck to believe that that decoy doe that's right there in the open meadow is real. And by the time the fish realizes that the hook is baited, and by the time that the buck understands that that decoy is not real but a facade, it's too late. By that time, the fish is already caught and the buck is already dropped. By that time, already ensnared, already dead, and the end result is their own demise. In the same way, Pastor James says, you've got to look ahead and realize that the end result of all temptation is your destruction. The end result of all your sin is your death. In order for you to overcome temptation, you've got to look ahead and realize That the end result of all temptation is your destruction. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said the inclination towards temptation is both sudden and fierce. Perhaps you know what that feels like. For temptation to strike you out of left field, it's a gut punch, it's a sucker punch. It comes at you out of nowhere. You know what it is for temptation to be both sudden and fierce. Bonhoeffer went on to write, It's not that the devil wants you to hate God. He just wants you to momentarily forget about God. Just to live in the moment as if God doesn't exist. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, it's been my observation that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows the fun, the beauty, the ecstasy, and the excitement, but never the consequences. The devil never tells the heavy drinker, You know, tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're not going to remember anything from tonight. Tomorrow you're going to have a severe hangover. And if you continue down this path, your addiction to the bottle will cost you everything that matters most to you. Oh, the devil never tells the thief, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. I mean, if you get caught stealing that, it just might land you behind bars. If you go to prison for stealing that, then you've got to staple that on every job description you ever submit. Oh, the devil never tells the adulterer, if I were you, I I wouldn't go behind that hotel door. Because on the other side of that hotel room door, there may be a few fleeting moments of fun and excitement, but also on the other side of that door is a broken home. It's an unwanted pregnancy. It's a sexually transmitted disease that you did not see coming. It's guilt and shame that will dog you for the rest of your days. The devil never says anything like that. But when the bait is on the hook, And the decoy has been set. And the dirty deed is done. The devil is nowhere to be found. It was Alistair Begg who said, Sin results when desire and temptation and opportunity collide. You may be able to handle two out of three of those. But if all three happen simultaneously, Watch out because sin is crouching at your door. It's desire plus temptation plus opportunity. It's the desire for significance. It's the temptation to slander somebody's reputation in the hopes that that may make you feel better about yourself and elevate your reputation among the peers that you have around you. And it's the opportunity that all the girls are going out for dinner and a movie and you're with the girls and they're there at the restaurant, just order the meal. Everybody's engaged in conversation. and It's the perfect opportunity for you to slander that individual who's not in the company of those around the table, but everybody around the table just knows who this person is. And you're willing to slander that person's reputation in the hopes that everybody around the table will like you a little bit more. Temptation coupled by desire and opportunity. Another example could be it's the desire for pleasure. It's the temptation of lust. It's the opportunity that you're at home by yourself, staring at your computer screen, and the baited hook is just two clicks away. Desire plus temptation plus opportunity. Alistair Begg said you can handle two out of three. You can handle it if there's desire and temptation, but no opportunity. You can handle even if you have desire and opportunity, but it's not really a temptation. You can also survive if there's temptation and opportunity, but it's not a desire for you. But when all three happen simultaneously, when there's a desire that meets temptation, that meets an opportunity, watch out. Because when those three things collide, then sin is crouching at the door of your heart. And it is ready to not only master you, But to devour you and to destroy you. Here in our passage, James just simply tells the church don't be deceived. Do you realize that your enemy, my enemy, the devil, he is crafty, but he's not creative? He uses the same bag of tricks in order for you to sin and for me to sin. And do you know why the devil uses the same ploys? Do you know why he uses the same bag of tricks that he's been using since the Garden of Eden? The reason is because they work and because we fall for them. We fall for pride and lust of the eyes and greed. He's been using those from the very opening pages of God's holy word, from the dawn of creation. So you and I would do well to discover our triggers. I'll define a trigger in this way. It's a a certain uh, criteria, a a set of experiences that that if that criteria is met, it sparks disobedience. All of us have triggers. Uh, They're probably innumerable. I don't have time to itemize all the triggers that that I've heard about over the last 20 years as I've sat down and talked with individual men or individual women or couples or families that come and share their experiences of how life is falling apart the seams and the wheels are coming loose. And, and, and as they talk to me, they, they tell me their trigger. It's that set of circumstances that if met, it sparks disobedience. While I can't itemize all of them, let me give you the top three. It's a trigger trilogy if you will one is fatigue the other is stress and the third is boredom there are some people that when they get fatigued it is an onslaught of the enemy that when they get exhausted when they uh, try to try to uh, you know burn the candle at both ends when they are fatigued then the devil is right there to prompt us with an unholy escape of our difficulties, and there are some individuals that because of fatigue, they'll reach for the bottle, and they'll indulge in alcohol, and because of that alcohol, that will loosen their lips, and, and they'll say things that they later regret. They'll do things that they're embarrassed by, and it's all because of that trigger of fatigue. There are other individuals that it's stress that's their trigger. When they get overwhelmed with stress, They indulge in gluttony. It's the comfort food. They just binge on certain foods and they're just guilty of gluttony. all because they're just stressed out to the max. Then there are other individuals and it's boredom that's their trigger. I've had more than one man tell me that when life gets boring, lust looms large. More than one man has told me over the years that the reason he went down the path of pornography was because he was bored. He was bored with life, bored with the marriage, bored with the job, just bored. And out of sheer boredom, the devil baited the hook. You've got to figure out what your trigger is. What is it that, that is your hot button issue? What, what is it that, that's the criteria that's met? And when it's met, more times than not, you venture down a path where your own evil desire drags you away and entices you. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that you've got to be smarter than the cow. My first pastor, it was in Owenton, Kentucky. It was a farming community. And in that church, there was a man named Red. He was a big burly farmer the reason we called him red was because he had red hair red and his wife had four daughters and to red it didn't matter if you were a boy or a girl if you were a part of his family uh, you were going to work on the farm a couple of those girls resembled their father and they were kind of burly and to be honest they kind of intimidated me (laughs) Then there were some other of the daughters that they were more dainty. It's one of these dainty daughters that Red tells me the story. He comes into my office and he says, it never fails. When I tell her to go feed the cows, it won't be five minutes later that I'll hear her screaming, Daddy, come, help me. And I know exactly what's happened. When I go over to the pen, I'll discover that that cow has cornered her. I'll have to get into the pen, I'll have to rescue her, have to feed the cows. We get out of the pen and I look at her and I say, do do you know why this happens? What does the cow want? He wants the grain that's in the bucket that's in your hand. And if you have the grain in the bucket in your hand and once you get in the pen, you start backing up, that cow will inevitably corner you. Daughter, you got to be smarter than the cow. That story is 20 years old. But in that moment and still to this day, it rings true. That's what the devil wants. You've got to be smarter than the devil. You know what he wants. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. He wants to be your demise. He wants to corner you. You know what he wants. And friend, you just have to overcome temptation. And James says one of the ways you do it is by looking ahead, knowing that the end result is always destruction. The end result is always death. Secondly, if you and I are going to overcome temptation, we must not only look ahead, but we also have to look around. Revisit with me verse 17. James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. We have a good God. And this good God gives good gifts he can't help it because if he is intrinsically good he cannot help but to give good gifts now let me pause right there and encourage us never to be more enamored with the blessings of God than we are with the God of the blessing We ought not to be more in love with the forgiveness of God as we are the God of the forgiveness. We ought not to desire the grace of God as much as we desire the God of the grace. We need God in our life. And if God is in our life, he's a good God. He is a good God who gives good gifts. He just can't help it. He just has to shower good gifts upon you. Not only is this good God Giving good gifts, but he gives them in a good way. James says, They come down from the Father of lights. That phrase, come down, is a present participle, which implies it's a continuous action. In other words, God never turns off the faucet. He just keeps showering us with good gifts, a good gift from a good God given in a good way. It continues to shower down upon us. It continues to come down upon us and God just can't help it. He will not turn off the faucet of blessing in your life, not even in the midst of COVID-19, not even in the midst of a pandemic, not even when sickness and sadness surround you, not even when circumstances are shaking you there is nothing in this world that can stop a good God from giving good gifts in a good way he continues to shower down his goodness upon his people this is our God and James says he does not change like shifting shadows there's nothing shady about God there's nothing shifty about God if you think of it God can't change he can't change for the better Because he's already perfect. He can't change for the worse because he's holy. So because of his perfect holiness, our God cannot change. He cannot change his goodness. He cannot stop his good gifts to his people. They just continue to be showered upon us. And we are recipients of good gifts from a good God that constantly flow down to us in spite of anything else that's going on around us. I thought you might get excited about that, but that's okay. You have some more opportunities later on in the sermon. (laughs) About the only good person in the Old Testament with the best character is a man named Joseph. Joseph was sold to Midianite merchants by his jealous brothers. In turn, they sold him to Mr. Potiphar. Potiphar was a ruthless man. The reason I describe him as a ruthless man is because the Bible says that Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. You don't become the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard unless you are a bad dude. Pharaoh was a ruthless person and so was Potiphar. Potiphar took Joseph into his custody And he noticed that everything Joseph touched turned to gold. The Bible says it this way, that the hand of the Lord was upon Joseph. Everything he did turned out well. This caught the attention of Mr. Potiphar. So he promoted that servant. In fact, he made him the CEO of Potiphar's House Incorporated. There was nobody greater or more in charge of Potiphar's possessions than Joseph. Joseph was in charge of everything in the house. Joseph was in charge of everything outside the house. Potiphar had nothing to worry about so long as Joseph was in charge. Joseph not only caught the attention of Mr. Potiphar, but he also caught the attention of Mrs. Potiphar for other reasons. The Bible says of Joseph that he was well-built and handsome. Truth be told, he was the kind of guy in high school that I hated. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Joseph was well built. He was handsome. Mrs. Potiphar usually got what she wanted. And day after day, she made sexual advances towards Joseph. And day after day, Joseph refused. I told you Mrs. Potiphar usually got what she wanted. One day she dismissed all the workers in the house it was just Joseph by himself she came around the corner scantily clad leaving nothing to the imagination she approached him and seductively said come to bed with me and this is what Joseph said Joseph said with me in charge my master has nothing to worry about everything in his household is available to me except you Because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing against my God? And with that, Joseph refused and he fled. Think about what Joseph said. How could I do this wicked thing? This adultery was wicked. And it's not Joseph's definition. It's God's definition. And the God who does not change has not changed on this issue of morality and purity. So Joseph is being the mouthpiece of God when he says, this is a wicked thing. How can I do such a wicked thing? And he says, it's against my God, not my master, not Mr. Potiphar. It's not that Joseph was fearful of what Potiphar might do to him. No, he had more fear of what holy God might do to him. So he said, how could I do such a wicked thing against my God? Even though Joseph was imprisoned, even though Joseph was incarcerated, even though he was subject to servitude by a foreign government in a foreign land, he still said, my God has been good to me. My God has blessed me. All Joseph had to do was look around and see the blessings of God. Even in the midst of incarceration, even in the midst of captivity, Joseph still declared, my good God showers good gifts upon me. How can I do such a wicked thing against my God? It was God's goodness that, that, that tethered him. It was God's goodness that restrained him. It was the blessing of God that prompted Joseph to be obedient unto God. One commentator just trying to keep it real said, so don't for one second think that Mrs. Potiphar was an ugly woman who was fat with bad breath, who had a crooked nose with a wart on the end of her nose. No, Mrs. Potiphar was gorgeous, and she normally got everything she wanted, and Joseph is a red-blooded man. What do you think would normally happen under normal worldly circumstances? Yet Joseph refused. How? Because he looked around at a good God who had given him good things. Once again, it's Warren Wearsby who said, God's blessings are always greater than the devil's bargains. God's blessings always greater than the devil's bargains. If you're going to overcome temptation, first and foremost, look ahead. Because the end result of temptation is your death, your demise. But secondly, look around because you have a good God who showers upon you continuously good gifts and allow the goodness of God to restrain you from disobedience and motivate you unto glorious obedience unto the Lord. But there's a third lesson that James wants to teach the church. If you're gonna overcome temptation, look within. Look with me once again at verse 18. He being God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Beloved, if you are a Christian, then can I tell you this morning as adamantly as possible, God has chosen you. God has chosen you. Before the very foundation of the world, long before you willfully chose God, God intentionally chose you. He selected you for his service. He selected you to be drawn unto him. Just as you and I cannot generate our physical birth, so you and I cannot generate our spiritual birth or being born again. It is the work of God who initiates our salvation, who accomplishes our salvation, who signs, seals, and delivers our salvation. It is God who has chosen chosen us. And what did he choose us for? He chose us for his glory. He chose us so that we may have the living Christ dwelling in us. Here James speaks of that massive miracle when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform you into a child of God. That is a mighty miracle. The Apostle Paul He is spellbound by this in Colossians chapter one, verse 27, when he speaks about the greatest mystery in the cosmos, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The greatest mystery in all the cosmos is the reality that the eternal Christ can dwell in you, that the eternal, glorious, majestic, Jesus Christ can dwell in you. You've been chosen so that Christ may dwell in you. You've been chosen by God to serve the Lord, yes, to live for him, yes, but you've been chosen so that Christ may dwell in you, stick out of you, and show a watching world how they too can get to God. This is an amazing mystery. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. James says you are a kind of firstfruits. He doesn't have to explain that to his predominantly Jewish audience. Those are Jewish believers that he's writing to in the first century church. And they knew the Old Testament. They knew the language of first fruit. A first fruit was the choicest. It was the best. It was the first that was offered up unto the Lord. It was symbolic of the entire crop or the entire animal. It was the first fruit of the sacrifice. The first fruit of the harvest. And James says that you are the first fruit of humanity. You are the choicest of humanity. You are the finest of humanity. And don't you dare begin to swell your chest and say, yeah, I really am pretty good. It's about time you recognize No, it's not about you. It's about who's in you that makes you fine and glorious. It's about Christ dwelling in you. Because Christ is in you, you are a kind of first fruit. You ought to be at the front of society's line. You ought to be on the front lines telling people who God is and how they too can have Christ in them. Because if Christ can dwell in me, he can dwell in you. If Christ can reside in me, he can reside in you. There is nothing good in me or about me save Christ and him crucified it is Christ in me the hope of glory that labels us as a kind of first fruit so we in order to overcome temptation all we have to do is look inside because he who is in us is greater than he who's in the world in good preacher fashion James saves the best for last Certainly, we ought to be motivated unto holiness and obedience because we look ahead and we think before we act. We think before we speak. We think before we type. We ought to look ahead and realize that the end result of our sin is death. That's a good motivator. The second motivator is even stronger uh, that, that we ought to overcome temptation by looking around and seeing a good God who gives good gifts. That ought to motivate. Us unto holiness and obedience. Oh, but the third lesson is the best. That the best way that we overcome temptation is by looking within and seeing the hope of glory residing inside of us. The same Jesus that was nailed to the cross. The same Jesus that was raised from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus so that his dead body could breathe again. That same power resides in every believer. That same power resides in everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And in that moment, Jesus will invade your life and invade your heart. He'll take up residence inside of you. And the best way for you to overcome temptation it's just look within because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So if you want to overcome temptation, just look ahead. Just look around. Look within. I came across this illustration which may serve well as a fitting conclusion. If you can imagine with me that my heart and your heart are about the same. That inside my heart resides two men the old Adam and the resurrected Christ. And when temptation comes knocking on the door of my heart, if I send the old Adam to answer the door, I will sin. If I permit Jesus, And ask him to go answer the door when temptation comes knocking. I will win because Christ is always victorious. So really the only question that matters this morning is when temptation comes knocking on the door of your heart, who do you send to answer the door? If it's your old self, sin will result if it's the resurrected Christ that lives inside of you, believer, then you will be victorious over sin. If you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I, I don't know if I have Christ living in me, then today can be the day of your salvation. I say this to any person who's here in this worship service or viewing this worship service live. If you would say to me in an honest fashion that I don't think that Christ is living in me, then today can be the day of your salvation. All you have to do is just admit to God that you're a sinner and believe that Jesus died on the cross for all your sins, past, present, and future. His dead body was taken off the cross and placed into a grave. He was only there for a few days from the third day he was raised from the dead. And if you believe that, if you trust that, if you believe that Jesus is the God-man who squarely placed upon his shoulders the condemnation that you deserved, then you, my friend, can go to God and say, I, I, I just need Jesus to forgive me and to lead me. My friend, today can be the day when Christ takes up residence in your heart. You may be listening to my voice today and you say, now preacher, I know that Christ lives inside of me. I settled that years ago. But, preacher, i got to be honest, far too many times I send the old Adam to answer the door. And why do I do that? Let me simply uh, wrap it up by reminding you of a story of Henry Blackaby. It was Blackaby who said that in the heart of every person, there's a dog fight. There's a good dog and a bad dog that's waging war in your spirit. And black could be asked the question, do you know which dog wins? And the answer, whichever one you feed. Could it be, friend, that the old Adam answers the door because you're feeding your old sinful self? And could it be that inside your spirit there is that war that's being waged and the victory's already been won at Calvary's cross, And it could be that the war, the battle is raging inside of you between the good dog and the bad dog. And you just spend the majority amount of your time feeding the bad dog. And maybe you just need to stop today and say, God, help me to nourish the good dog that's inside of me. Help me to trust in you more. Help me to read more of your scripture. Help me to pray upon you. Help me to send you to answer the door when temptation comes knocking. friend." When temptation comes, and it comes for all of us in various ways, and it's sudden and fierce. When it comes, who do you send to answer the door? Send Christ. You want to overcome temptation? Look ahead. The end result of temptation is your death. You want to overcome temptation? Look around. Because a good God has been showering good gifts upon you from the moment you accepted him in your heart. You want to overcome temptation? Look within. Because inside of you, believer, is Christ, the hope of glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's somebody listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today they will call upon you in faith And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who struggle with temptation in various ways. And the reality is they allow the old self to answer the door. Help that to stop today. Give us victory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.